Adrian is based at Christchurch London with uh, David Stroud, um, and he also uh, is very involved with um, New Frontiers and New Day, and spoke at New Day this year, so many of our young people will be very familiar with him. Um, it's great to have you with us, Adrian. Introduce myself. For those of you who don't know me, <coughs> I thought I'd just introduce myself by saying that last year, my wife, Julia, had our fourth, and in my opinion, final child. There she is. <coughs> She's called Emma. Uh, now, she does actually have legs. <laughs> it's just that you can't see them in this particular photo. I don't really know why uh, that is. It's a bit of a mystery. Um, but anyway, I have one wife <coughs> and four daughters. And my wife is called Julia. And uh, the other day, a woman in Fulham, where we live in West London, uh, she, we were talking about the fact that uh, we've got four daughters. And so I tell her, you know, we've got four daughters. She says, oh, she says, that'll be pricey. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, well, did you know that the average cost of a wedding in the UK is now £11,000, she says. Factoring in inflation, she says, that means you're going to have to stump up at least 50,000 quid to marry them all off. I said, I haven't got 50,000 quid. She said, well, you're going to have to rob a bank. <laughs> I said, I can't rob a bank. I'm a Christian. She said, oh, how very inconvenient. <laughs> so, uh, that was one of many disasters in evangelism that, that I've had. Um, I, I've had a, um, I mean, there, there's so many I could go on for ages. Here's, about, here's one that I had in Asda. I was in Asda once and... Um, we were just queuing up for the checkout. Now this, I have to say, hardly ever happens to me, but I just felt <coughs> that I had a, a word of knowledge or a prophecy. I thought God had told me something for the man in front of me in the cash out at Asda. Right? So I tapped him on the shoulder. <coughs> he turns around. I said, oh, I'm sorry to, to bother you. Um, uh, can I just ask you a question? He says, yeah. I said, are you from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He said, no. <laughs> he said, I'm from Dagenham. <laughs> I said, right you are then. Sorry to bother you. And that was the end of that. So, I've had many disasters. The other day I had a disaster. This is, this is my most recent disaster. Um, we, Judy and I are having um, some of the neighbours round. We were having like a sort of a, a, a drinks thing, evening party type thing in our house. And... Um, there was this one couple that uh, lived down at the other end of our road and I hadn't seen them for ages and so I just thought I'd invite them because we'd always got on well with them and they're called Gotham and Niraja, right? They have a daughter called Maya. And um, I go round to their house, they're not in, so I'm walking back to our house, number 23, and I see what I kind of think is actually the, the woman, Niraja, walking along the road because she's got this daughter that looks about 10 and I know that Maya's 10. And so I just immediately shout out, because in my excitement of seeing them, I shout out, Niraja! It's Adrian, remember me? Adrian from number 23. And she said, I'm not Niraja. She said, I'm Sita from number 36. I said, great! That's great. And I said, well, hey, I'm Adrian from number 23. And, and so I invited her around for this neighbours thing we were doing. And uh, anyway, so her daughter's about the same age as, as our eldest daughter. Anyway, this is all preamble to the story. So anyway, we're having this sort of cheese and wine evening, or whatever we called it. And... Um, we were chatting to, to her um, with some other folks and um, Julia mentions to this woman, Sita, who's a hairdresser, 
um, that we go to church. She said, do you go to church? Judy said, yeah. She said, I've been waiting for someone to invite me to church. Please invite me. Judy said, Sita, would you like to come to church? She said, yes. So that was brilliant. So that, that was the way that worked out. So she came to church the other day. But that started off as a disaster. I'll tell you, I've got a couple more of these sort of stories. Um, one of them was, this is something that happened to me um, with another neighbour actually. One day I was uh, just uh, going outside the house and I saw this man across the street called Darren. Well, obviously I didn't know he was called Darren at this point, he was just a stranger. Um, but he was obviously a neighbour, he was getting his kids into the car and I thought to myself, his kids look about the same age as ours. So I go across the street and I say, oh hi, uh, just noticed, I live at number 23, my name's Adrian, I, I just uh, noticed your kids look about the same age as ours. He says, I am absolutely delighted to meet you. And I'm thinking, whoa. He's friendlier than I am. I said, well, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, maybe if you, you know, I don't know if you'd be interested, but you could come over, you know, perhaps our children could play together in the back garden. He said, oh, that's brilliant. We should meet up lots of times. Yes. I'm thinking, whoa. He's friendlier than I am. So eventually, we actually went over to his house and um, we're talking in the back garden and um, he, the thing he can't work out is that our church meets in a, in a London West End theatre. He can't work that out. And he says, look, I don't know much about religion, he says, but have you ever read a book called The Da Vinci Code? I said, as a matter of fact, Darren, I have. And so then we had a conversation, you know, like you do about conspiracy theories and the Templars and was Jesus God? You know, it's actually quite a good thing to talk to your neighbours about whether Jesus was God. Um, but my point is this, look, neither Darren or Maria have got converted, neither of them have become Christians, but they're kind of part of our world. And there's something I learnt that day. And that is that if I am willing to say hello to a few of my neighbours, I will flush out any who are friendlier than I am. That's what I learnt that day. Another thing I've noticed is that even here, in the southeast of England, there are some very few occasions when it is still considered socially acceptable to speak to people who you don't know. People who you've not been introduced to. Now, one such occasion was, we went, Judy and I went to this uh, multicultural evening at the local school. And so, um, at this multicultural evening, I get talking to a man who is wearing a Mexican hat, a Hawaiian shirt, and a grass skirt. And so I chat to him. I said, oh, I said, where are you from? He said, Iraq. <laughs> we had a brief conversation about recent events in Iraq. <clears throat> and then... Um, there was quite a, it was about an hour's worth of multicultural dancing. Anyway, I get chatting to him again about an hour later, and I, I ask him a question. I say, would you say that everyone in Iraq is a Muslim? He says, we've got to talk. And he beckoned me for a sort of secret, private conversation. He's going like this. He, he beckons me towards the bar. So we go down to the bar, and so he leans on the bar, he sort of looks both ways, he checks that the coast is clear, and he says, I have completely rejected Islam. I look around, I check that the coast is clear, I say, so have I. <laughs> he said, no way, that's an amazing coincidence. I said, yeah, it is. 
He said, well, we've got to talk about this. I said, yeah, we have. He said, well, what are you doing on Saturday? I said, well, I don't know. He said, why don't you come over with your family, uh, come over for dinner? We'll, we'll come over at half past three, we'll have dinner. We will cook you a full Kurdistani dinner. So anyway, on the following Saturday, um, now this is relevant to the rest of the story. Following Saturday, I, we'd had a bit of a late lunch, to say the least, and I just had a McDonald's, we took phone to McDonald's, and I'd had um, Big Mac, large fries, and a large strawberry milkshake. So that's all relevant to what happens next. So we arrive at their flat, and Salah's there, and his wife's called um, Mira, and uh, basically the, the, their daughter's called Lara, and uh, as she opens the door, she's a doctor, this woman, and she opens the door, and she says, Welcome to our home, she says. This is half past three in the afternoon. Welcome to our home. Let's all sit down and have dinner. And suddenly it dawned on me. I thought, you know, come over at half past three and we'll have dinner, you know, like, I don't know, six o'clock or something. But she's thinking, no, 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 dinner is at half past three. And so we sit down and it's that thing like when they're, they're waiting for you. They can't eat until I've started eating because I'm like the guest. And she brings in all these layers of food. Like the whole of Kurdistan is being brought in. I mean, she'd been in the kitchen all week preparing these meals and I thought about that verse in the Bible that says, eat whatever is set before you. And I remember that day that I promised that I would obey every command in the New Testament. Lord, I will be faithful unto death. And here I was with the whole of Kurdistan, like a massive table of food. They're all waiting, they're all watching. And I've got this, you know, Ronald McDonald's inside me. Anyway... At the end of this, I felt so bloated and I was sort of waddling towards the door at, at the end of the afternoon. As I was kind of trying to sidle my way out of their front doors, as I was so full, um, Selah said something to me that no one's ever said to me before. He turned to me in Judea and said, we want to be with you. We want you to be our friends. And you know, Salah. Here's this deal. We're down at, um, when I was preparing this talk, uh, we were down at Family Splash, because around where we live on a Saturday morning, this is what you do. You go down to the swimming pool and it's Family Splash, and, um, you know, we're sort of swimming. Well, obviously, you know, me, me and Salah weren't swimming. We were just talking like all the dads are at one end, all the kids are sort of drowning down the other end. And we're like, you know, you're like, by the side, we're just having a little chat like you do. And um, he says, um, I want Lara, that's his seven year old, I want Lara to become a Christian, he says. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? And what he meant by that is, look, we, my wife and I, we have completely rejected Islam. But we don't have anything to put in its place. So our daughter's going into school, and she's being asked, oh, so you're a Muslim? And she said, no, no, we're not Muslims. And they said, well, what are you? And she doesn't know. She hasn't got an answer. So we want her to become a Christian. Now, we know that believer's baptism is different from, you know, infant baptism. But let me just say this. If you've been brought up in a Muslim country, it is still a big deal to say to somebody, I want my daughter to become a Christian. And what I learnt that day is this. If I am willing to say hello to a few people who I don't know at social functions, God will bring to me people who are searching and people who are open. The sort of people who've rejected Islam but don't have anything to put in its place. Folks, um, I'm really excited to be able to chat to you for a few moments this morning about the good news that the church will evangelise the world before Jesus returns. Jesus himself said this, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. 
This, folks, is the most definite statement in the whole Bible about when Jesus will return. Your sharing of your faith is destined to lead to an astounding success. What you are doing in Hastings as you chat to your friends is not incidental. It's part of a massive success story. In Revelation 5.9 we hear heaven celebrating the fact that on the cross Jesus purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And better still, in Revelation 7.9 we actually see the fulfilment of the Great Commission. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throng and in front of the Lamb. So we know the end of the story. Hey, this could be the single most interesting thing about you. You know the future. There you are, you're in a traffic jam in the centre of Hastings, everybody's just sitting in the car, all in a row. You're the only person in that traffic jam that knows the future. You're down the leisure centre, or you're down the supermarket, there's people everywhere, or you're at the school gate, there's like mums and dads all over the place. You know the future. You know how the story ends, you know what's going to happen. It's amazing. It's like you know the numbers to Saturday night's National Lottery. You know what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. It's the most interesting thing about you. Here we see people from every language group who are there in heaven standing before the throne and in front of Jesus. The Lamb of God has succeeded in taking away sins from every single ethnic group on the face of the earth. Not one has been missed out. The Gospel has successfully penetrated every single tribal group. Excuse me. So folks, for every unreached group to be reached, we're presumably going to see the most enormous missionary advance. We're going to see huge numbers of people becoming Christians all over the world before Christ returns. That would fit perfectly with Revelation 7-9, which, remember, tells us that the number of people who are going to be saved is so great that no one could ever count them. So huge numbers are going to be saved. Folks, these verses make us think that lots of people in Hastings are going to become Christians before Jesus returns. Yeah? So we should be hugely encouraged by this. The global success of the Gospel has already been assured. So this is going to happen. So I just want to encourage you this morning, if I can, with six ways in which we'll see many people become Christians. And uh, here's the first. That God is at work in the hearts and lives of people. He set the whole thing up so that people would seek Him. Now here's... I've got six points, by the way. I'll tell you what's going to happen. I've got six points... Six stories about six people I know and I'll show you a photo of each of them as I go through. So, here we go. Here's the first story. Uh, This is about uh, uh, someone who possibly you may know also. He's an 18-year-old student and uh, he he arrives... He's he's from a Greek Cypriot background and he arrives for his first day at college. Now, this guy is not from a Bible-believing home, uh, so he's never come across evangelical Christianity. He's just arrived for his first day at college in North London. He doesn't know anyone. And he arrives in the refectory. And uh, anyway, 
When he gets to the refectory, there's somebody else in the refectory who's in the year above. He's called Andy. And Andy is a really keen, committed Christian. Right? This is the conversation. Andy sees this new kid on the block called John. Right? And Andy says, this is the opening words that Andy says. He says, Oi! You! And John sort of looks around thinking, who's he talking to? And John says, excuse me, you're talking to me. Yes, I am, Andy says. He says this, what do you think of Jesus Christ? And John says, well, uh, to tell you the truth, I never really thought about it. Never thought about it? Do you know something? You're stupid. John says, I beg your pardon? You've never, you, you say that you've never thought about Jesus Christ? Don't you realise you're throwing your life away? John says, no. No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, now listen, I'm going to give you this book, right? It's called John's Gospel, right? And if when I see you again around here, I'm going to ask you, and if you've read it, I will talk to you, but if when I see you again around here, you haven't read it, I will never, ever speak to you ever again. And he walks off. <laughs> now, do you know what? John takes this book, John's Gospel, he goes home, he reads it takes him two hours and 20 minutes to read it, the whole of John's Gospel. He's so captivated by this Jesus that he's reading about in John's Gospel, he thinks, I'm going to read it again. So he reads it again, another two hours, 20 minutes, and eventually goes to sleep in the, in the small hours of the morning, having read John's Gospel twice. Well, as you've probably guessed, this guy John, or his name is actually in Greek, Johannes, Johannes, or J. John, he becomes a Christian. And that was actually on, on, the, on the 9th of February, 1975. And uh, this guy, Jacob, is now Britain's leading evangelist. And uh, over the last 30 years, he's probably led more people to Christ here in the UK than anybody else. But here's my point. You know what? For you and me, if we'd been there in the college refectory, and Andy Economides had come up and said that to us, we probably would have thought, whoa, you're pretty full on. Um, I think I'm going to head that away. In other words, that kind of ultra-aggressive approach that would not have worked with us. It would have scared us off. Yes? Yes. But you see, when you actually know these folks, I know both of these guys quite well. Folks, that is exactly the sort of approach that would connect with John. You see, both of these guys are from the same Greek Cypriot background. And when you get to know John, when you get to know J. John, that's the sort of thing that would make him think, blow you, I am going to read your book then. That's exactly the thing that would make him read the book. Folks, God knew. God knew. God is looking down from heaven thinking, look at all these millions of people in Britain that don't know Christ. And here's this 18-year-old. He has got the gifts. He's got the sense of humour. He understands culture. He is going to be able to reach thousands of people in Britain for Christ. But I've got to get him in my kingdom. I've got to get him to become a Christian. He's totally divorced from Christianity. He's never even met a Christian before. How can I get him in my kingdom? Andy Economides. He, they both speak Greek. Andy's going to be aggressive. John's going to respond. I can see how it'll happen. I've got to get him in the same place. So I need to manipulate John's A-level results so that he gets the right results to be in the same college as Andy and then I need to get them. God is big enough and clever enough to work it all out. God has determined the exact times and places where people should live. God set the whole thing up, Acts 17, so that people should reach out and find them because he's not far 
from each one of us. Why was John interested? The Bible says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes 3.11 Hundreds of years before, Augustine prayed, Lord God, You've made us for Yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. There are restless people in Hastings who are looking for something. We know that's true. Billy Graham went round the world for 50 years with the same message. There is a God-shaped hole in everyone's heart. And wherever he went in the world, he saw the same results. He gave the invitation and people came forward. Because people all over the world said, yeah, I can relate to that. I think, you know, I think there is a God-shaped hole in my heart. And so they came out of the stands and went and stood on the pitch. Because that's the way that we're set up. That's the way we are. So anyway, that's the first way. Second way. Second way, a second reason we'll see many people become Christians is because the Father heart of God is to seek and to save the lost. This is so exciting because, of course, this is how God feels about you. God's heart is towards you. That's how come you're here. You could very easily have not have come to know Christ, but the fact is God loves you so much he came and found you. And you might say, yeah, but I was only seven. Yeah, God came to you when you were seven. Yeah, but I was brought up in a... No, the the fact is, God came to you. There are loads of people brought up in Bible-believing homes that aren't here in church this morning. God came to you. God is excited about you. You know, one of the great things that Jesus taught us in Luke 15 is that God has feelings. He has emotions about you. So, for example, in the stories that Jesus tells in that chapter, the first story, as I'm sure you may know, is all about the lost sheep. You know, there's like a shepherd, he's got a hundred sheep, he loses one. But when we read it, we're amazed at how excited the shepherd gets when he finds the lost sheep. He puts the sheep over his shoulders and celebrates. And then we hear something we wouldn't otherwise know. We hear about what happens in heaven. Because Jesus teaches into it and says, in the same way, there will be rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one lost person who comes back to God. And then Jesus teaches into that and tells us the same thing, but in a different story. He says, okay, there's a woman, she's got ten silver coins, she loses one of the coins, but then when she finds the lost coin, again, there's this big celebration. She's so excited about it. And then, again, we hear information that we wouldn't know unless Jesus had told us in this particular chapter, which is that when somebody comes back to God, when like a lost person is found, there's rejoicing in heaven about that. And then, third thing, Third parable Jesus tells us is the story of the lost son. And this is the one where I think we discover more about how God really feels about you than maybe anywhere else. And what happens is this. There is a son. And he wanders off and he, you know, as you know, he squanders the father's wealth in, in wild living. He's taken half the money off his, off his dad. And he, he comes to the end of his senses. He, he comes back and he's sort of hoping that maybe somehow he'll be accepted, maybe as a hired hand on the farm or something like that. He comes back and as he returns, he hasn't even made it home. But the father sees him in the distance. And just the sight of his son returning is so emotionally moving to the father that he feels energy come into his body. And he must have been waiting every day, we, we would imagine, for maybe this could be the day that my boy comes home. And when he sees the silhouette of his son on the horizon, Jesus says, he runs. To meet him. And so we have this picture of the father running. Is that how you see God this morning? Like your father running to meet you. Woohoo! He's coming back. 
She's coming back. God feels energy coming into his body and he runs. And of course, what does he do? He doesn't give the boy a scolding and a telling off. No, he picks him up, he spins him around, he says, put a robe on his back. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Let's kill the fattened calf and celebrate. That's how God feels about you. And of course, the older brother's like, oh, I can't believe you're having all this celebration, you know. And, but the father says, no, we have to celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so when you responded, I don't know, maybe it was a, at a scripture union camp or at a Bible week or with your mum at home, maybe it was 50 years ago. But when you prayed a little prayer and you gave your heart to Christ, Luke 15 says the angels celebrated. Woohoo! They cheered. You know, when on a Saturday afternoon goals are being scored in football matches in Britain, as far as we know, heaven does not celebrate. But when you, in 1947, or in 1959, or in 1968, or in 1979, or in 1984, or in 1997, whenever it was that you gave your life to Christ, heaven erupted! Woohoo! They cheered and celebrated. Because God's heart is for you. God's like, wow, do you see angels, angels, gather around. Can you see that hand at the back of the meeting? That is Becky! That's my girl, that's the one I've been telling you about. I'm so proud of her. Or maybe you responded, you came down the front of the meeting somewhere and God was saying, angels, angels, gather around, come to Hastings. That is Andy. That's my boy. I'm so proud of him. Look, isn't he great? Look, he's responded. Folks, God's heart is for you. And God feels exactly the same way about those who live in this town who don't know Jesus yet. Now, some of them you know. Probably between us, we probably, need, we probably personally know about three or 4,000 people in this town. Just, just us in this room. I mean, I don't because I'm not from here, but you do. But, across us, you know, but there's all the others as well. But let's just take the three or 4,000 that we know. There's people that we know in Hastings. God feels exactly the same way about them. It's so exciting. God's heart is to seek and to save the lost. I'll tell you the story of Michelle May. She was a Buddhist. She was in fashion design and she had a friend in the industry called Amanda Scott. And Michelle went round to uh, Amanda's house once and um, it turns out that uh, Michelle sees that Amanda has a Bible in her room. Michelle said this, I thought that she must only have a Bible to be ironic, she said. I assumed that she was sketching it for a still life. I asked Amanda, why have you got a Bible in your room? Are you drawing it? Amanda replied, no, I read it. And then they had a conversation in which Amanda Scott tells Michelle May that Michelle is a sinner. Michelle says this, I was so angry, I felt I had to find out more so I could disagree properly. <laughs> a very responsible attitude. Then she says this, but when I met Amanda's Christian friends, I was totally taken aback by their friendliness. I thought that they would all be wearing beige. <laughs> as that's where I saw Christians on the colour charts. And of course, as I drove down here this morning, I realised that I... <laughs> I myself am a fulfilment of the caricature of a beige Christian. And that really is ironic. Anyway, Michelle was converted reading my second book, Aftershock, on the tube. And the fact is, um, 
The Father heart of God is to seek and save the lost. Can I just tell you what Michelle does for a living now? She is employed by New Frontiers and she is the person that administrates all our short-term mission teams to unreached people. But it didn't work. There are millions of Christians in China and there are loads of Christians in Russia. It just didn't work. Why? Why didn't it work? Because people are incurably religious. Folks, it's really hard to believe that the universe just popped into existence for absolutely no reason. Life revolves around cause and effect. So why should any of us come to believe that the universe popped into existence for absolutely no reason at all? Why should any of us come to believe that for no reason, all this stuff, we, we know the universe had a beginning, we all know that now. But why should it suddenly pop into existence? People find it hard to believe that there's absolutely no purpose and no reason at all. It's similar to what Paul is arguing in Romans 1 where he says, look, there's enough evidence in the world around you to work out that there is a creator, that there is a God who made the mountains and the oceans and the stars. <clears throat> and so that means that when we raise the subject of God with people, for example here in Hastings, we know in the UK 73% of people believe in God. So when we mention the whole idea of a first cause or a creator or something, some wider purpose, it's not as if people are like, well, I've never even heard of that idea before. No, 73% of people already believe that God exists. So we are, we're not starting at, you know, at, at rock bottom with people. It's, it's not irrelevant to people. That's my point. Fourth reason why we'll see many people become Christians is because people are attracted to the idea of wanting an overall purpose or plan for their life. <clears throat> One of my best friends in our church is called Pete Mack and he was a management consultant, or still is a management consultant. Pete said this, as a non-Christian I wasn't satisfied. He thought, I've got everything that I want so I should be happy but I'm not. So Pete started working through the alternatives and eventually he came up with what he thought was the answer. Pete thought the reason he wasn't completely happy was because of his lack of social conscience. He thought, oh, I know what it is. I'm too selfish, I'm too materialistic. I need to help the poor. So he goes to Botswana. As a, as a non-Christian, goes to Botswana and, and works alongside some Catholic priests in Botswana. And when he gets there, he discovers that they're actually from London and that they're very sharp, intelligent, able guys who could be making a lot of money on the futures desk in the city of London, but instead, they have chosen to bury themselves in Botswana and help the poor in that country. And Pete's thinking, wow, why would they do that? Maybe there is something in Christianity. After three months working alongside the Catholic priests, Pete goes hitchhiking in the Kalahari Desert. And he's funny the way he tells the story because he says, you know what, because it's a, actually a desert, it's a really bad place to go hitchhiking because th there's nobody to pick you up. So this is the truth. Pete Mack <coughs> spends three days sitting by the side of a road in the Kalahari Desert waiting for a lift that never came. He said, after three days I realised I did not like my own company. Pete Mack worked out all by himself in those three days there's something wrong with me. It's not just middle class guilt that I'm experiencing. I am a sinner. 
And therefore, if sin exists, then therefore God must exist. And so by the side of the road, he prayed a sinner's prayer to Jesus and he became a Christian. Right there in Botswana. Came back to London and he's now one of our church trustees and he leads our healing team. Folks, in the same way, to our amazement, we will discover there are people who will come in we won't necessarily even know them and they will sit on the back row in these green seats and they will find Jesus because the fact is that people like the idea of there being an overall purpose or plan for their life. Fifth reason why we see many people become Christians is because people feel guilt and they like the idea of having their sins erased. Now, just breaking with my story for a second, I was thrilled to hear this as a non-Christian. You mean, you mean I can be cleansed? You mean you're saying I can feel pure? Somebody said to me, Adrian, you can have an internal shower. And that really appealed to me. Because I'm thinking, right, you're saying actually I don't have to become increasingly religious to get in on this? You see, here's where I'm coming from. All through my life, I've been told the same thing. If you want to get these really good prizes, you have to work really hard to get them. If you want to get that job, you have to pass these exams. If you want to be earning this much money, you need to work hard at this, this, this and this. These are all these things that I want, and for all of the things I want, I'm told I have to work to get them. Then I discover there is actually only one thing that I need. I need to get my sins forgiven. I need to get a place in heaven when I die. And I discover that to get that, I don't have to work. I get it absolutely free. Gratis and for nothing. I'm told I do nothing. What, you mean I don't have to like, go on a pilgrimage? No. You, surely you're going to give me some religious hoops to jump through. No. You, I just stay where I am and you just, you just believe. Yeah. Woo! I'm like, where do I sign? This is fantastic. The reason It took me nine months to become a Christian. The reason, all through those nine months, I'm thinking, this sounds too good to be true. Where's the catch? You think I don't have to work, I don't have to, go, I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that, you say I just have to believe? Come on, whoa, whoa, whoa. And eventually I came to see, no, 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 you can be. A righteousness from God that is by faith from first to last. I knew I could never be holy enough. But then I discovered the one thing I need, righteousness, is given as a free gift. This is fantastic. This is brilliant news. Folks, I signed up and I was thrilled to do so. Let me tell you about my friend Paul Hanley. Paul used to work in the insurance business. He's married with three sons and um, it's a bit of background. He used to play rugby for Caterham Rugby Club in Surrey. He's a keen surfer when he gets the chance. He's originally from Cornwall. Uh, Paul had absolutely no interest in Christianity. He didn't believe in God. He thought the whole thing was a lot of nonsense. Anyway, one day in Caterham, he's out... um, going out for a picnic with his wife and his wife's called Helena and as they're walking along holding the picnic boxes they see this couple that Helena knows there's a Christian couple that she's met and they're called Richard and Jill and it's that thing where Paul the last thing he wants is to have a picnic with some Christians so Paul's looking straight ahead pretending that you know like you do oh, sorry like, like I do um, pretending that he hasn't seen them so he's like kind of blanking them like this but it's too obvious you know he, they've seen there's been eye contact you know there's no backing down. And so Paul has to kind of reverse and go into that sort of fake sort of, oh, hi, hi, how are you? Didn't see you over there. How are you doing? Thinking, oh, no, trapped with the Christians. Um, 
And so eventually he, th- he thinks, well, there's nothing, you know, I can't get out of this now. You know, they've seen us, we've seen them, and they're already having a picnic, we've got our picnic boxes, you know, I can't, like, deliberately snub them, so he feels obliged to go over and sit down. So anyway, he thinks, right, well, the reason this is going to be awkward, Paul's thinking, is because, of course, they're, they're probably, you know, they're probably going to mention the God thing or the church thing, because that's, that's probably what Christians do. And, of course, I, you know, they've got this faith. <laughs> they've got this faith. Whereas I am, a, you know, unlike them, I'm a rational, educated, cerebral person. So, you know, I'm going to disagree with all this sort of faith stuff that they're going to come up with. But maybe, you know, I can point out the inconsistencies. I can point out the logical fallacies. And I can kind of show them, actually, where they're going wrong. And I can help them. Paul's thinking. So that's the kind of the way he gets himself to, oh, right, I will have the conversation. The conversation actually takes an hour and a half. And Paul felt that he kind of won the argument pretty easily, actually. He said, you know, as I walked back to the car with my wife, I thought, it's not hard. It wasn't difficult to win the day during the discussion about God and church and Jesus and all this stuff. Paul gets to the car, puts his key in the ignition, But before he turns the key, he hears himself say these words to his wife. Helena, darling, you know that credit card bill that I said was this much? I'm really sorry, I've got to tell you I lied. It was more. It was this much. There then follows a sharp exchange of views between the (laughs) married couples, you probably imagine. And so Paul thinks, you know, what was that? Where did that come from? So he turns the key on, he drives home, and he thinks nothing more of it. You know, that's just an odd thing that happened to me you know, in my 30s. I'll, I'll think nothing more about it. Gets home. When he gets home, he said, for the next three days, I found myself walking into my study, getting out a pad of A4 paper, and writing down on line sheets all the wrong stuff that I had ever done in my entire life. He said, it took me three days because I had 35 years of stuff to write down. He said, Adrian, the only way I can describe the feeling to you was it was just like being sick. In other words, when you're being sick, you know, if you can just get it all out, you know that you'll feel better when it's all out. And he said, that's how I felt as I was writing it down. I said, Paul, what brought on this dramatic change in your life? He said, it wasn't anything that Richard and Jill said. It was them. I said, what about them? It was their purity. Folks, I met Paul Hanley two weeks after he became a Christian. He turned up at our church in Rygate with his wife, Helena, and their three sons. And he actually said, my name's Paul, this is my wife, who introduced his children, he said, we've just become Christians. What what do we do next? What's the plan? What do we do? And Paul Hanley is now the lead elder of Rygate and Red Hill Community Church. And one of the reasons for that is because people feel guilt and they like the idea of having their sins erased. Sixth and final reason why we'll see many people become Christians is because there is no knockout counter-argument or piece of evidence. Folks, Lex Loisides is probably the leading evangelist in New Frontiers around the world. And uh, Lex, his story is that he was strongly opposed to the Christian message and in his particular case would often argue publicly against Christians. And um, you know, he had a number of arguments that he would advance against Christians. I actually quite enjoyed the cut and thrust of the debate, found it fairly easy to win uh, arguments against Christians. And uh, one night in Hove, he was at an all-night party 
And some bright spark, you know, in the early hours of the morning on a Saturday night said, I know what, just for a laugh, why don't we all go to church tomorrow? We'll just sort of find a church somewhere. So they stumble out of the party, you know, in, 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 on the Sunday morning and they're walking along the road and they're, they're literally looking for a church, you know, just for a laugh because this is the last thing that, you know, they would normally do is go to church. And they come across a rainbow, but not a rainbow in the sky. No, a Christian rainbow. You know, like Christian rainbows painted on this church sign. And underneath the Christian rainbow were these words, come and praise the living God. He thought, oh, this is just what we want. A come and praise the living God rainbow church. This will be a great laugh, they say. So they go into the church and um, the thing that strikes them about the meeting, and incidentally the meeting was a meeting of Clarendon Church Hove, now called Church of Christ the King. So the, the thing that strikes them about it was the fact that there was dancing. Now Lex has never, you know, never been to church, ever, so he's really struck by this, and he thinks, well, this is fascinating, you know, it's a social phenomenon, obviously some people, well, probably most people go to the gym, but these are religious people. So they don't go to the gym, they come to this church thing, and they obviously work off their energy, and they sort of jump up and down, and that's the sort of thing they get their buzz from, yeah, interesting. And so he and his friends sit on the back row, reading the Daily Mirror, upside down. <laughs> just like, you know, we are the rebels, you know, we are here, but we are not participating, you know, we're just having a laugh. And... Lex says that what struck him about the worship time was that during the worship, quite apart from the dancing, there was a moment when they sang a particular song that says these words, I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. He has come me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. And these words, you see, when he heard those words, he thought that the members of Clarendon Church Hove were celebrating their own righteousness as opposed to the unrighteous people who are outside the church, who lived in Hove, you know, the outsiders, the non-Christians. He thought they were celebrating and dancing and celebrating their own righteousness and that they were using the non-Christian population of Brighton and Hove as a kind of handy point of reference to remind themselves of how holy they were. He thought they were literally dancing, saying, we are the righteous ones, we are the holy ones, but you are the scummy ones, and you are not very holy, but we are the righteous ones, we are the holy ones, but we're glad you're all outside, you're really very dirty, but we are the holy ones, we are the righteous ones. That's what he thought. He said, I was so angry he said, I was so angry, I wrote it down. <laughs> In this little book, they actually celebrated their own, I mean, obviously failing to realise that what they were actually celebrating was the exact opposite. They were celebrating the fact that because they had absolutely zero righteousness of their own, they were celebrating their imputed righteousness that Christ had given them. And so he misunderstood. But Lex said this, if you had told me at that moment when I angrily wrote down my sense of indignation and moral outrage at the self-righteousness of the Christians, if you told me that morning that one year later I would become a Christian and join that church and that two years later I would be standing on the platform preaching in that church, I would not have believed you. In fact, Lex said, for many years after this, he said, of course, when he became a Christian and joined the church, he said to the people in the church, of course, the first time I ever came to this church, there wasn't a sermon. And everybody said to him, now that can't be right. We've never had a Sunday morning meeting 
where there hasn't been a sermon. He says, well, there was the first time I ever came before I was a Christian. And he realised over the years what had happened was, at that moment, like halfway through the meeting, when all the kids go out, he and his mates on the back row just thought, oh, well, that's it. That's the end. So they just left. <laughs> and they were actually saying as they walked up, that wasn't nearly as bad as we thought. That was what, I mean, that was. So anyway. So what happened to Lex? It's a long story. But it's a long story that ends with well, Lex's mate, Glenn. Lex has got a mate called Glenn. And Glenn comes up to him. And these are the words that Glenn says. Lex, I've been born again. And Lex says, oh, no. You've let them in, Glenn. You've let them in. You were probably having a weak moment. or I don't know, maybe having some trouble in your life at the moment. And it was in a weak moment. And you, you've let them in. Oh, come on, Glenn. Let's sort this out. What did they give you? Come on, hand it over. What was it? They probably gave you a book or some literature or some pamphlets. or just, just hand it over to me, right? And I will go away tonight, Glenn. I'll study it for you. I'll read it. I'll read everything they've given you. We'll meet up tomorrow and I'll be able to show you where it contradicts itself, where it's going wrong, what obviously is not true. You know, I can help you with this. Glenn, don't worry. We can get through this. All right? So Glenn hands over the offending literature, which is, again, a copy of John's Gospel. So Lex goes home and starts to read John's Gospel, you know, looking for, you know, errors and stuff. But of course, you can probably guess where this one's going. The Jesus of John's Gospel walks off the pages of John's Gospel and into Lex's heart and Lex becomes a Christian. Folks, what happened to all those objections that Lex had against Christianity? What happened to all the arguments that he would stay up late at night debating Christians? All the points that he would make against Christianity? None of them could stand up against the real Jesus that he experienced. He still had the same intellectual powers. He still had the breadth of reading. He still had the same grasp of truth. It wasn't as if he'd become intellectually stunted as he read the book. No, he encountered the real Jesus who trumps every objection, who answered every question. I am the truth, Jesus said. And Lex had been looking. He'd been searching. And he yielded to the truth and gave his life to Christ and now has led hundreds, thousands of other people to Christ. Folks, it, th- this, is, this is my own perspective on where we're at in this country right now. It is not the case that the people of Hastings have heard the Gospel and have duly weighed up the evidence and have decided, actually, I find the Christian faith wanting, I'm going to stick with what i got. That is not what is happening. The simple fact is that the people of Hastings, by and large, have not heard the Gospel. We are not dealing with a town that has consciously rejected the Christian Gospel. We're dealing with a town that hasn't heard it yet. And there are all these reasons why, if they do, there's a really good chance they'll believe it. Now, here's why, another reason why I can say that is because in the five years, last five years in London, we've prayed with 185 people to become Christians. Yeah? And we've baptised 165 people in those five years. And here's what we found. It's not because we have some amazing, mind-bending presentation. You know, we're just doing, presenting the facts, presenting the Gospel, and people are hearing it in an environment where they're not being asked to cross too many cultural barriers and we find about 40% of the people who hear the gospel believe it. Because the fact is that, you know, there isn't, there are loads of reasons why you want to believe it. There are loads of things that are appealing. 
And there is no knockout counter-argument. There is no piece of evidence, there is no theory, there is no archaeological discovery that totally knocks Christianity out of court. On the contrary, there are compelling reasons to believe the Gospel. Do you believe it? Okay, let's, let's, uh, if the band could just come forward and maybe we'll just sing and celebrate as we close. Folks, one of the things I know about you is I strongly suspect that there's a little part of you that likes an adventure in life. And I just want to remind you of an amazing fact about you. And that is that when you became a Christian, you were as loved as you'll ever be by God. And when you became a Christian, whenever it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you were as as forgiven as you'll never be. You're not more forgiven now than you were when you first became a Christian. I'm not more loved. I'm not more forgiven. I'm not, in a sense, any more saved than I was then. But here's what I noticed. When I became a Christian, rather than going straight to heaven, I was still living in southwest London. I'm still living on this planet. You made a decision for Christ. You're as loved as you'll ever be. You're as forgiven. You're as saved. But the fact is, you're still living here on this planet in Hastings. Why? Because God has a reason for keeping you here. He wants you to reach the people around you who don't know Christ. And he hasn't just told you to do an impossible task, he's given you the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. Thank you, Father. Let's have the, kill the fattened calf and celebrate. Thank you that you celebrate over us. Thank you that you love our friends and neighbours who don't know you just as much as you love us. Thank you your heart is for them. And we pray, Lord God, that you'd help us each one as we are friendly towards those who don't know you, as we seek to reach out and befriend new people, we pray, Lord, you bring to us those who are open and searching. We pray that this building will be filled with people from this town who don't know Jesus yet. And we pray that all the glory will go to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that you will win in the end. We know that every tribe, tongue and nation will hear the gospel. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's sing together, shall we? Thank you.